scripture reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. Exodus chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty, so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Morning. It's a pleasure to be speaking to you this morning. We have some visitors with us this morning. We're especially thankful for your presence. We invite you back at any opportunity that you might have to join us. Something that the elders have been discussing, particularly earlier this year, was the need to stop and notice evidence in favor of Scripture. The need to notice that. Our faith in Scripture does not come from a vacuum. It does not come from rejecting any other historical records. In fact, the more we learn about history, the more we can find evidence in favor of Scripture. And this is important because at times people may come to question their faith, particularly young people as they come of age. If they do not have a firmly established basis for believing in Scripture, they might fall away from the faith. And so this morning, we'll be looking at some historical evidence in favor of the Exodus. And ironically, this morning in the adult Bible class, we were looking at Jude and noticed the phrase in there that we should contend earnestly for the faith. This morning, we will be contending for the accuracy of the book of Exodus. So... I think one thing we should note is that God does not leave himself without a witness. In Scripture, as God reveals himself, it is often accompanied with, what's the saying, signs and wonders and miraculous signs, right? God would flaunt the laws of nature, you might say, to prove that something greater than man is at work here, to provide evidence of who he is and what he is. And in Acts 14, Paul told the Jews at Iconium, God did not leave himself without a witness. Similar sentiment from Paul in Romans 1. He says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, that being understood by what has been made, so they are without excuse. He was talking about the evidence God had left through nature to speak to some higher power. So God has always provided evidence outside of Scripture to support Scripture. And this morning, that's what we'll be looking at. Um, we'll be focusing on Egyptian history, particularly what it records around the Pharaohs and how that aligns to the story in Exodus. Now, there are many theories about who was the Pharaoh during the Exodus and during the time of Moses' birth. If you like Hollywood movies, like the old, you know, Charlton Heston, The Ten Commandments, they favor Ramses. Um, you can find a lot of theories. Uh, there's so many theories about the Pharaoh involved that in 1997, a, a historian named John G. wrote an article titled, Who Was Not the Pharaoh of the Exodus? Thinking that he'd maybe try and rule a few out. And part of that arises from fuzziness, you might say, in history. When you start looking at ancient dates, it's very hard to get precise on the dates. 
There's not a lot of historical records for some things, and so details are kind of difficult. And thought that occurs to me, you know, these days we talk about nations engaging in propaganda. I would imagine there are some deliberate distortions and propaganda, you might say, in the ancient history as well. And so there are contradictions in history. And as historians try to make sense of all that, it can be difficult to nail things down specifically. But as Christians, I would suggest we approach this a little differently than what historians might approach it. I would suggest that this book is divinely inspired, that it is accurate, that it is correct, and that as we seek to answer the question, who is the Pharaoh during the Exodus, I would suggest we look at it as scripture is accurate and our question is really, are there Pharaohs in history who align with the biblical account? Because if we approach it from that direction, looking for something in Egyptian history to align with Exodus, there's a very compelling series of pharaohs that align amazingly well with what we read about in Exodus. And that's what I would like to share with you this morning. I think we should notice also that Egyptian history is what we might call a hostile witness. In court, if someone is accused, there's an assumption that their friends would like to give favorable testimony. There's an assumption that their enemies might like to give unfavorable testimony. And the strongest evidence comes from when someone has to go against their bias. If a friend must admit something that condemns their friend, or if an enemy must admit something that exonerates their enemy. And the Egyptians were no friends of the Israelites. So whatever we find in Egyptian history, notice that that is coming from a hostile witness. It is not something that they would be inclined to support. And another challenge we have that actually turns out to be helpful evidence at times, something called domnatio memori. That is a Latin phrase. It means condemnation of memory. There's a practice in the ancient world if a nation was humiliated or if they just didn't like certain events, they would try to eradicate references to those events from history. Condemnation of memory. Let's just pretend it never happened. You know, if, if a person is embarrassed, they'd rather not talk about it. If a nation's embarrassed, they'd rather not talk about it. And that was a practice. It was practiced by the Romans, practiced by the Egyptians. It happened enough that they now put a name on it. Condemnation of memory. And so there are some gaps in the Egyptian history where we just don't know much of anything. And as we'll notice, those gaps come at some rather suspicious times. Uh, before we jump into a discussion of the pharaohs, let's work a little bit on narrowing down the time range. And I think the clicker is plugged in. Can you move the USB cable to the other? I think it's plugged into the wrong computer. Is it right? Uh, maybe it's turned oh, oh, it's turned off. My mistake. There we go. Okay, let's work on narrowing down the time range a little bit. In 1 Kings chapter 6, it says that in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of Egypt, the temple was built. So, based on that, based on the time estimates for when that occurs, that points to somewhere around 1450 B.C. 
for the time of the Exodus. And a reference in Judges states that the time of Judge Jephthah, they'd been in Canaan for 300 years. Judge Jephthah's estimated to be around 1100 BC, so that puts it around 1400 BC for entry into Canaan. So somewhere around 1450, they leave Egypt, takes them some time to get to, e or to Canaan, then they wander in the wilderness for 40 years, somewhere around 1400 BC, they come in to Canaan, and I am, I'll tell you right now, I'm not specifically trying to nail down dates precisely, as I said, I think many dates in ancient history are fuzzy. I think if we try to narrow it down to a precise year, probably gonna have a false sense of confidence. I'm just looking to get somewhere in the ballpark, give us some frame of reference, and we'll go from there. So that points us to somewhere around 1450 for the Exodus, somewhere around 1400 for entering Canaan. In Exodus 7, verse 7, it tells us that Moses was 80 years old when he spoke to Pharaoh. We know that they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, so we're probably looking at roughly 120 years from Moses' birth until entry into Canaan. Just putting these things together, it's somewhere in the last part of the 16th century. That's going to be the low 1500s BC when they would have come out of Egypt puts it in Egypt's Thutmosid dynasty, which actually covers a broad range of time from 1570 to 1300 BC, and points us to either Thutmose I or Thutmose II for being the pharaoh at the time of Moses' birth. And you'll see pretty quickly, Thutmose II looks like a very strong candidate. But first, let's briefly look at Thutmose I, You'll notice on these next few slides, I have a date range by each one. That is the approximate time that Pharaoh ruled Egypt. And it is a precise date, but if you go research these Pharaohs, you can find other dates that shift around a little bit. So don't expect precision in those dates, but that does give us some idea. And Thutmose I was in the, what, 1526, 1512, somewhere around there was when he was reigning. And the Egyptian records tell us he commissioned major construction projects, he had to acquire many slaves, so of course this fits with the lead-in to the time of Moses' birth, because we know the Israelites were enslaved and they were forced to help with construction. Um, Continue on. Thutmose II, his son, was approximately 1512 to 1504. Egyptian history tells us that he was weak. His reign was short. But he was known for his brutality. He had a reputation for killing children. And of course, that starts to perk our attention, does it not? We know that when Moses was born, What's the story? The Pharaoh had ordered the execution of all the male children. His parents kept him hidden as long as they could. And it tells us they made the basket out of reeds, covered it in pitch, put him in the river. Pharaoh's daughter comes along, finds it, takes him out of the river, and takes him to live with her. And so to find a Pharaoh notorious for killing male children, 
is interesting. Start to see a bit of alignment there. But Egyptian history also tells us that um, he received news of slaves in the region of Cush going into rebellion. And there's an inscription that quotes him as saying, as I live, as Ra loves me, as my father, Lord of the gods, praises me, I will not leave a male alive. It's a quote from Thutmose II referring to his efforts to kill male children in his oath to not leave a single one alive. A book titled The History of Egypt, Volume 2, covering the 17th and 18th dynasties, also refers to this time. Quotation from that book, it says that he sent a great army to the land of Kent in his good and victorious time to overthrow the rebellious. This army of his majesty overthrew these foreigners. They took the life of every male according to all that his majesty commanded, excepting that one of those children of the Prince of Cush was brought alive as a live prisoner with their household to his majesty. I wonder if that's Moses. There certainly could be. There's a few details that might make us question that a little bit. It refers to this captive as a prince. And in Exodus, we have no indication Moses was anything special at his birth. Um, but I... Also, remember in elementary school, I learned about when, uh, was it President Washington chopped down the cherry tree, right, and said, I cannot tell a lie. George Washington did not cut down a cherry tree when he was President George Washington, but there is a tendency when someone, became, when someone achieves such fame, there's a tendency to always refer to them with their title, right? And so the saying goes, you know, President Washington cut down a cherry tree. He cut it down when he was a child. He later became president. Perhaps this is a reference to Moses being, be, being a prince as he was raised in the house of Pharaoh. Perhaps it's referring to someone else, but it does also notice that the household came with him. You will recall from... Exodus, that Moses' sister stood by to watch after they put him in the river. And Pharaoh's daughter came along, found him. Moses' sister comes and asks, do you want me to fetch a nurse to care for the child? And Pharaoh's daughter says, yeah. And so who does she get? Moses' mother. Moses' family did go with him. So this does look like, quite possibly, a reference to that. Um, see, so backing up a little bit, before we move on past the, most the first and second, a bit more of interest here. When Thutmose II was 18 years of age, Egyptian history tells us that his father, Thutmose I, had him marry his 24-year-old half-sister, Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut failed to produce an heir, and so, was it Thutmose II? There's a lot of names. I'm having trouble pronouncing them. I have trouble keeping them straight and not having the wrong one. Um, when Hatshepsut failed to produce an heir, Thutmose II had an heir through a concubine. And 
Um, he, will, he was named Thutmose III. We'll come to him in just a moment. Then Thutmose II died at a young age. Thutmose III was two years old when his father died. And so Hatshepsut served as co-regent, the de facto ruler of Egypt, during this time until Thutmose III came of age. A question that arises at times in Bible class when we are studying Exodus is something along the lines of, well, if Pharaoh ordered all the baby boys be killed, how does the princess get away with keeping one of them, bringing him back home and raising him? And whoever is the unfortunate Bible class teacher at that point probably shrugs and says, I don't know. But, Hatshepsut was both the daughter of Pharaoh and the wife of Pharaoh. She was the wife of Thutmose II. She was the daughter of Thutmose I. And in Egyptian history, she liked to refer to herself as the daughter of Pharaoh rather than the wife of Pharaoh. And so, going with this timeline, we see a very powerful woman, a woman who would come to be the de facto ruler. Egyptian history tells us she was powerful in her own right. She, identifying herself as the daughter of Pharaoh, was around at this time. So. Perhaps Egyptian history provides a hint to that question. Perhaps the reason they got away with keeping Moses contrary to Thutmose II's command is because it was Hatshepsut who people <laughs> obeyed. Um, let's see. Yes, and so you'll notice from Exodus chapter 2 in verse 5, uh, when we're introduced to her, she's referred to as the daughter of Pharaoh, came down to bathe. She's consistently referred to as the daughter of Pharaoh. Uh, let's see, so let's continue on. Aminahat. Aminahat is the firstborn son of Thutmose III. He is barely a footnote in the Egyptian records. He died very young, he never became Pharaoh. So the throne will pass from Thutmose III to Amenhotep II, who is not a firstborn son. Firstborn son designation will become increasingly relevant as we continue through our story. I'm sure most of you realize why. The tenth plague being the death of all of the firstborn sons. Because another question that arises at times in a Bible class studying Exodus is if during the 10th plague all of the firstborn sons died, Pharaoh didn't seem to die. Weren't the Pharaohs typically the firstborn sons? Why didn't Pharaoh die during the 10th plague? And whoever's teaching Bible class at that time typically shrugs and says, I don't know. Perhaps he was not a firstborn son. What we have at this point in the chronology of the Egyptian pharaohs is someone rising to the throne who was not 
a firstborn son. Amenhotep II, half-brother of Amenhotep. He assumed the throne when he was 18. He reigned for 26 years. He imported more slaves. One of his slave master's tombs is decorated with paintings of slaves making bricks. That again will stir your recollections of the book of Exodus as the Israelites were making bricks. He was known for his cruelty and his brutality. In Exodus chapter 2 and verse 23, it says, It came about in the course of many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel groaned because of their bondage, and they cried out. Just a moment. I need to find myself in my notes. I got to go in from memory and lost my place in my notes. Okay. So I'm in Hotep the second. Not a firstborn son. It is interesting that his reign includes the time that is 80 years after Thutmose II. Thutmose II was that one we spoke of a few moments ago, known for killing male children, the one who stirs suspicions of perhaps being the Pharaoh at the time Moses was born. And now Amenhotep. The second, 80 years later, at the time Exodus tells us Moses would have spoken to Pharaoh at, his, at the age of 80, this man is the Pharaoh, not a firstborn son. Which brings us to Amenhotep II. Oh, this is still Amenhotep II, sorry. As I said, I got distracted from my notes going from memory, and now I have to get my place again. Amenhotep II was a very ambitious man. He had campaigns in his third, seventh, and ninth year. He was headed for being a very noteworthy pharaoh, not someone who would be lost in the footnotes of history, and then, oddly, he went silent. Well, Egyptian history goes silent. They, just, after having so much to talk about, his grand conquest for the first part of his reign, there's just not anything significant in the latter part of his reign. So much so that the silence is itself suspicious and noteworthy. Sir William Petrie, who is referred to sometimes as the father of Egyptian archaeology, says, of the remainder of his reign, we know nothing. Another historian, Manuelen, says, this silence plays too large a role in assessing Amenhotep's policies, for not a single text survives which describes a major act or decree of any historical significance. The man who was doing so much in the first half of his reign seems to have accomplished nothing in the last half of his reign. You remember Damnatio Memore, condemnation of memory? If something's unflattering, the Egyptians, like the Romans, would have a tendency to try to eradicate it from history. It's almost as if the ambitious guy, they just didn't want to talk about what happened in the last part of his reign. 
Let's continue on. Thutmose the third, or excuse me, Thutmose the fourth. What happened to Thutmose the third? Thutmose the fourth was the next Pharaoh. More quotes from Peter Dermanuelen, an Egyptologist. He says, it is unfortunate that the events surrounding the ascension of Thutmose IV are so obscure, especially since the dream steal between the paws of the great Sphinx suggests he was not originally intended heir to the throne. Comes from studies in the reign of Amenhotep II. Why would someone not be intended to be the Pharaoh? The kingdom passes from firstborn son to firstborn son. That's the tradition, unless something comes up. If someone is not intended to be the next Pharaoh, that would be because he was not the firstborn son. So notice what happens in the chronology of the Pharaohs. We have a Pharaoh who is not a firstborn son. The kingdom passes to another Pharaoh who is not a firstborn son. In Exodus, at the time of the tenth plague, Pharaoh did not die when the firstborn sons died. Pharaoh at that time was presumably not a firstborn son, and of necessity, since his son died, the next Pharaoh would not be a firstborn son. What we would anticipate finding is two pharaohs in Egyptian history in succession who are not firstborn sons. Thutmose II and Thutmose IV, two pharaohs in succession, not firstborn sons. And there's silence surrounding the conditions by which he rises to the throne. It's almost like they don't want to talk about it, right? De Mario Memore, Condemnation of Memory. There's so much that we can see that lines up. Then when it just goes silent, the silence itself can become suspicious and make us think, aha, I know why they don't want to talk about that one, right? Let's continue on. Amenhotep III. He's characterized as a pacifist, a bit out of character. He's known for constructing statues a lot of them. Many of the statues he constructed, some 600 of them, are devoted to Sekhmet, the Egyptian goddess of healing. If you're thinking about how this would align with this chronology and how it aligns with the story of Exodus, we would be presumably sometime shortly after the Exodus. The 10th plague was not the only plague that harmed them, right? And there was the hail, there's lots of death and destruction. Egypt was suffering. After that, it is totally understandable that they would have a renewed attention on a goddess of healing, right? What else do they need but healing? So the next guy, he's a pacifist. It's like he doesn't want to fight, like the fight has been taken out of the pharaohs, and suddenly they're interested in healing. This hostile witness of Egyptian history, it was never going to just come out and say, wow, you know, we abused those Israelites for years. 
their God got sick of it, and he really whooped us, humiliated our gods with these plagues. You know those plagues were aligned to the Egyptian gods and their power? It wasn't just a demonstration of God's power. It was God demonstrating dominance over the supposed Egyptian gods. The Egyptians were never going to just come out and celebrate the story of the Exodus. But they can't suppress every detail, can they? That event was too big. It encompassed too much time. There's too much detail in the story of Exodus. So that what we find in the Egyptian history, there's plenty there to notice the alignment. Let's continue on. An interesting find from the royal necropolis of Amenhotep III. It's a pylon with an inscription on it that refers to the Sashu of Yahweh. Yahweh, of course, is the Jewish name for Jehovah, God, the Jewish God. And this inscription refers to the Sashu of Yahweh. Sashu means nomads. Nomads are what? Wandering people. So here we are, what appears to be a few decades after the Exodus, and there's a reference to the nomads of Yahweh. Really don't know anything else about them other than it appears to imply that they were located somewhere east of Egypt. This would be the time when the Israelites are wandering around in Canaan. And Egyptian history refers to the nomads of Yahweh. Akhenaten, approximately 1377 to 1360 BC. Egyptian history records major upheaval in Canaan. At this time, Canaan is loosely controlled by Egypt, and their history records violent conquests within Canaan by people it identifies as the Hebiru people. That is presumably a reference to the Israelites. You know, it's common to have a variety of names for people. Um, we, we do that without thinking about it, but, right? Like, you know, country folk, rednecks, hillbillies, like. There's a lot of synonyms. It's natural to refer to a group of people by a variety of terms, right? It's not surprising to see a variety of terms scattered across Egyptian history referring to people who seem to line up with the Israelites. But these letters cover violent conquests in the land of Canaan. I realize this is an eye chart. We'll not take the time to get into it, but this is a chart that describes many of those Armana letters. It provides a summary of various ones of these letters, the violent conquests it describes, and then it references a passage in Scripture describing the Israelites' conquest in Canaan that matches up to that. It appears that the Armana letters are quite compatible with the biblical account of the conquest of Canaan. Now, obviously, there's going to be a lot of point of view differences. The Israelites are going to be you know, happy about victory and giving a very favorable explanation, whereas someone from the other side of those events would be making them out to be villains and terrible and whatnot. But there's a lot of compatibility between these Armana letters and the biblical account of the conquest in Canaan. And that is happening at this time in the Egyptian pharaoh's history. 
Akhenaten oversaw the collapse of Egyptian religion. It's quite an oddity in their history. Uh, Egypt pivoted from polytheism, that is a belief in many gods, to monotheism, focused on one of their gods, the sun god Aten. Akhenaten is also referred to as a revolutionary, a heretic, a fanatic, possibly insane, and a pacifist. The pharaohs, after being so ambitious, so aggressive, so violent and cruel, there's now a tendency for the pharaohs to be pacifist. They seem a bit timid, focused on healing, and now they seem to be enduring a collapse in their religion and a turn towards monotheism. Why? There's an inscription at Karnak near Thebes that says the temples of the gods are fallen to ruin, their bodies do not endure. You see, there had been a loss in faith in Egypt's numerous gods. This is the same dynasty. This is chronologically just a few decades after the biblical exodus humiliated their gods. And what do we see? It's a loss of faith in the various Egyptian gods. Focused on healing for a while, now they're kind of turning towards monotheism. A lot of those gods they previously referenced, they just don't seem to care about them anymore. Interesting. What do we have? Let's recap. Egyptian history was never going to talk about, wow, how those Israelites really whooped us, taught us a lesson. But what it does say is that at a time that's chronologically aligned with the biblical exodus, after a pharaoh who is notorious for brutal slavery and killing children, we see a non-firstborn son, a violent pharaoh, who suddenly goes silent after being so active in the first half of his reign. Then the next pharaoh is again not a firstborn son. We see pharaohs focus on healing and then they become pacifists. We see references to the nomads of Yahweh and then conquest, violent conquest in Canaan. And then we see a collapse in the Egyptian religious system and a pivot towards monotheism. What more could you ask for from a hostile witness who is not like God, who would want to do no favors towards God? Obviously, Egyptian history is not inspired. It is not the Word of God. It does not rank, in our view, with the Word of God. We should always be looking to Scripture as our ultimate source of truth. But having said that, God provides a witness for himself. At times, history has said things that blatantly contradict the scripture, and historians would point to it and say, aha, you know, the Bible's not accurate, and then history or the understanding of history changes. They dig up something else. They find something else. What we find in history that stands the test of time aligns with scripture. So while we look to Scripture to be our ultimate source of truth, divinely inspired, correct, and accurate, there is a lot of evidence scattered across history that confirms various details. There is nothing unreasonable or unintelligent about believing Scripture. A belief in God 
requires faith, but it does not require blind faith. God has provided us evidence because he expects us to approach him with our reason, with our intelligence intact, to consider what he has to say, and then to decide, do we believe this? Is it appropriate, correct, intelligent to believe what he has told us? I believe it is. I would encourage you, if anyone at this time has not reached that conclusion, if they have not confessed their belief, if they have not been baptized into the Lord's church, you've got some thinking to do. Some will accept God, some will not accept God. But God has declared, through his apostle Paul in the book of Romans, that we are without excuse. God has provided us evidence, and a reasoning mind can conclude that God is who he says he is. If anyone needs to make themselves right with the Lord, we would encourage you to come forward and make that known while together we stand and sing the invitation song.